الجزيرة بودكاست We all come from somewhere, but what makes our homes unique? A recent Al Jazeera film series called A Sense of Community looks at just that in four distinct parts of the globe. Welcome to Little Tibet, Toronto, Canada. To Eden, Kenya. To Iztapalapa, Ciudad de México. To the Edo Hebrides, Scotland. But while all four communities have a strong sense of identity and place, they face modern-day challenges that threaten their very existence. So how can they preserve their heritage in changing times? I'm Hala Mahiyadeen, and this is The Take. I'm talking to Drew Ambrose, who's been reporting for Al Jazeera for over a decade as a correspondent for 101 East, the channel's Asia-Pacific documentary programme. In any given year, you can report from a very tiny island of 11,000 people in the South Pacific to a heaving megacity in South Asia. But for the past year, he's been filming in Mexico, Canada, Kenya and Scotland, examining the idea of place. He wanted to create something in contrast to what we see in a lot of international news, especially during the pandemic. So how did you come up for the idea of this series? Can you just outline the premise and where the idea of it came from? Well, look, as you know, Hala, when you turn on Al Jazeera, often it's um, <laughs> uh, wall-to-wall doom and gloom. And I wanted to do a series that was a bit more uplifting and looked at unique villages of the world because we've all been locked down for so long and been doing so many kind of interviews through Zooms. I wanted to do a series that had true connectivity and what better connectivity than, you know, community. One community in the series was not too far from me. Drew and his team went to film in the sparsely populated islands known as the Outer Hebrides in my home country, Scotland. This is a story that is all about depopulation and what happens when your population is dying out. Essentially, it has a range of characters who are trying to keep community spirit alive, yet there are a gamut of challenges facing this cluster of islands. Their population has halved in the last 60 years. We don't have enough people to work all the jobs that are going here. It's a really alarming scenario that we've got. The main challenge is there's just not enough housing. A lot of holidaymakers are buying up the housing stock on the islands and it's being treated as like a holiday destination, but people can't actually live there. There's not enough activities for young people to do. There's just not a range of hope and possibility for young people. And it just looks at, you know, what is the future of this place? Because it's been inhabited for hundreds and hundreds of years and you can see it in all the ancient stones on the islands and all these kind of old houses. And the population is continuing to shrink. And now I think it's got the highest rate of depopulation in the United Kingdom. So this is a story that, you know, a Japanese person could relate to or a South Korean or a Bulgarian because even though we've got 8 billion people on this planet, there are pockets of the world where we're seeing cultural and population decline. Absolutely. I mean, I'm from a rural part of Scotland down in the south and the town I grew up in, 
is, you know, it's old people now. It's mm. been seen as a retirement village and they're crying out for families with young kids. It's a story that does resonate worldwide. You know, how do you protect a community mm. and ensure its survival? The Scottish community that you spent time with in the Outer Hebrides, they seem very proud of their community and their culture. What are the ways that that manifests itself to you? And who were the characters that stood out to you in that story? The characters that really stayed with me, uh, um, we film, and how do I say this, Hala? We film with a mermaid, this girl, <laughs> that, that, this girl that she takes to the sea. She loves wild swimming, which I hear is a, a popular pastime. It's so popular here. If you're unfamiliar with the term, wild swimming is essentially swimming in natural bodies of water like lakes or oceans. And Drew found a fun way to capture that in the Outer Hebrides when he met Kate McLeod, who does wild swimming with an artificial mermaid's tail on. She swims around these beautiful waters, beautiful locks with a mermaid's tail on and at one point in the story, uh, I asked her, how do people react to you when they see you out on the water? The look on fishermen's faces when they see me swimming around, it's disbelief. I think at first they probably think I'm a seal. It's an answer that made Drew and frankly me laugh as well. And, and you know, when you, <laughs> when you sit on a boat and you see her, you know, working her way through the water, it's hard not to think of her as like this sea creature out in the azure water. But Drew says Kate also represents the challenges that the Outer Hebrides face. She's a representative of the young people on the island who are quite afraid of the island's future because she says quite candidly, when you look around, most of the young people here are my relatives. Who am I going to marry, you know? And so for young people there, it's very hard to find relationships and even basic housing. And also there's a lack of jobs due to depopulation. You see the fishing industry, there's not enough fishermen going on boats out to sea and to keep the industry going. They've had to import labour from places like Ghana. It's a unique place, but it is reflective of what you would see in problems facing other parts of rural Scotland because that's the response we've had from viewers that this is a story about Scotland. It's not just about the Outer Hebrides. Absolutely, and that film has resonated really quite widely here in Scotland because you could stick a pin in the map and it, wherever it lands, people will say, we are facing those issues. You see that across Scotland. You see that down in England and all the beauty spots. But something that is quite Scotland-specific is one of the responses the community had was to consider taking the land back into, into public hands. Absolutely. The root cause of the problem is these landlords have historically owned large tracts of Scotland. And the reason why we gravitated towards this part of the Outer Hebrides is because you see the scars of depopulation everywhere with these kind of shells of abandoned houses and you walk into some of them and you see mangled cupboards from the 1970s. And But slowly, villages are getting land back through community buyouts. There was a vote that was being decided, not attended by that many people, mind you, because of the lack of population. If you see the scene, yeah. it's a bunch of, like, it's a very small turnout for this buyout. The question the electors were asked, are you in favour of community ownership? Yes, 290, no, 170. Yes. 
voting to kind of own the land back. Drew says there's a real sense of pride in the identity of the people of the Outer Hebrides. Even though the population is perhaps distant in the eyes of someone who may live in London, there is a true sense of community. Like there's one guy that we follow, a crofter, which is kind of like a farmer, but they rent the land which they're working off. And he completely rejects the notion that he lives in a remote part of the UK. What really bugs me is when people come here and say, oh, you're remote, you're isolated, you're cut off. I instantly turn it on its head and say, what am I remote from? This is the centre of the universe, the centre of my universe. The way he kind of articulates, you know, he doesn't always romanticise life in the Outer Hebrides, but he kind of shows how people band together through things like the tractor run. Which drives through town and collects money for someone who really needs it in that community. Like, even though the population is disappearing, there is a real push for people to stay together and, without a doubt, a love of Outer Hebridean life on that island. Drew also travelled to Kenya for the series, to the town of Iten, famous for producing world class runners. What was it like embedding yourself in that community and filming there? Well, I think one memory that I'll never forget, Hala, when you go to Iten is like, I don't know if you play piano, but, you know, anyone that has anything to do with music can, you know, knows the sound of a metronome going tick, 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 tick when you're trying to play to the rhythm. Like early morning when you see that giant pack of runners like bolt past you... I've never felt an experience like that because all their feet are hitting the pavement in perfect sync and it's like this mass of humanity hurtling past you and these are the fastest people on earth. It feels like a very fast kind of Ferrari whooshing past you, but it's the sound of human beings. But there's also a dark side to Iten. It's not this, like, beautiful village where people just naturally run and it's this organic thing. It is an industry, and, you know, with female runners, they can make a lot of money if they win a lot of races, but with that comes predatory men who say they're in love with these women um, but are really after their money. And what rocked the little village of Eton was the death of Agnes Tirop, who was a famous Olympian. Investigations into the death of Agnes T. Ropp, Kenya's world record holder and two-time world championship bronze medalist, have begun. Agnes was found dead at a home in Iten in Elgeo, Marakwet County, with a stab wound on her neck. It's a story we've covered before on The Take. But while on the ground, Drew was able to get a sense of the problem for himself. We got an opportunity to interview the brother of the murdered runner, Agnes Tirop, and to film in the house where she was murdered. Agnes died a very tragic death. It was a painful death. Agnes was the pillar of our family. When Agnes passed, everything came to a standstill. We interviewed different people who were really affected, really shaken by the horrific death of this talented Olympian. But from that 
came a degree of hope because one runner, Joanne Chalimo, who is a famous marathon runner in Eton, she and a number of other athletes have set up this NGO called Tirops Angels in memory of the deceased runner. And they teach a lot of runners, whether they're young boys or young girls, about domestic violence and exploitation. What do you do? Boys, if you touch a woman without the consent, that is wrong. After the break, a look at some of the other communities profiled in the series and the common threads that tie them all together. If you need in-depth analysis of news and current affairs in one of the world's most misunderstood and complicated regions, join me, Sami Zaydan, every Thursday on the Essential Middle East podcast. The recent Al Jazeera film series, A Sense of Community, also went to Iztapalapa, a suburb of Mexico City known for its high levels of crime. I asked series creator Drew Ambrose about that experience. It is essentially that kind of part of a city that you never walk around, you know, like every town has that high crime area which everyone goes, ooh, you know, little crimeville, don't go down there, it's a scary place. Strong women like Joan in Kenya are a common thread throughout the series. In Iztapalapa, the mayor is one of them. It had this amazing female mayor, Carla Brigada, who has made it her mission to kind of lower crime and make the streets safe by creating these big parks with athletics tracks, giant planes where you can go in and read library books. These places offer free education, free arts programs, free sports programs. And you go into it and you see heaps of people just walking through these places which they call the utopias. Mayor Brugada also made it a priority to bring better lighting to Iztapalapa streets to make them safer for women. In general, Drew says the mayor has created safe spaces for people in the neighbourhood. In previous remarks, she has kind of referred it to the Great Garbage Dump or the backyard of Mexico City. But she says through her efforts, no longer can it be referred to that way. Iztapalapa is no longer the great garbage dump and backyard of Mexico City. It's becoming the heart of this great city. Drew's reporting also took him to Canada, where he met the people of Little Tibet in Toronto, who are facing a crisis in housing. As we've seen in China, a lot of people have fled Tibet because of the violence and the problems there. A lot of them went to North America to this little pocket of Toronto called Parkdale and they've turned it into this really interesting neighbourhood with temples, with Momo restaurants. You walk down the main street and you see Tibetan prayer flags and it almost does look like Tibet. And because it's become such a funky bohemian place, other people are moving in now and you're seeing gentrification occur. So that episode is kind of your quintessential, they paved paradise and kind of all the hipsters left and all the interesting people left and all the rich bankers moved in and ruined the joint. The people that have made this community great, they don't essentially have a home. They don't know whether they're going to live there in 20 years' time. The rent used to be about $800 per month. They have raised 
up to 1750 for just one bedroom almost double There are similarities between the housing problems faced in Parkdale and the ones Drew looked at in Scotland. But unlike in Scotland, what stood out to Drew in Parkdale was the young people. There's two Tibetan girls in particular, young leaders in the community. One of them, Sonam Choki, she's a local dancer who teaches young kids in the local cultural centre. Even though she's never set foot in Tibet, she feels a real affinity with the place and dance is really important to her because she wants to connect with her ancestors. And the weight of that connection is clear in the film, when Sonam gets emotional after Drew asks her why she dances. Just the fact that I can't go to Tibet, it's something that I care about so much. And like, to answer your question simply, like, why do I do it? It's just because I love it. It's something that makes me feel human. It makes me feel whole. You see every Thursday night, the whole community out on the school field doing this kind of traditional Tibetan dance called Gorshe. At the end of every festive event, you see them all get in a circle and the Tibetan instruments come out and they kind of have a dance and enjoy each other's company. So, like, even though gentrification is going on in Parkdale, I think the significance of this place is it's probably one of the few places in the world outside of India where Tibetans are truly safe. Like, I mean, they are being persecuted at home in China and this is a place where they see it as a haven where they can express their identity. Drew started filming during the pandemic as the Omicron variant hit. And at one point, he wasn't sure how he was going to finish the series because of potential border closures. We thought a series that would work would be embedding ourselves in one community and showing problems of the world through a microcosm. And through that lens, Drew saw the impact the pandemic has had on the communities he met. I think there has been a major rethinking within society about what is important, particularly given the pandemic was such a cataclysmic event. I think people now are putting more emphasis on quality of life. And I I do think it is reflected in this series because you see the Tibetan community talking about why this little enclave in Toronto matters in terms of like the existence of Tibetans. They say, you know, existence is resistance. Having a community that is thriving ensures that the Tibetan way of life continues. Talk to us about the commonalities that you see through all these communities. Would you say there's a thread that links all of them together? They all have leadership in some way, shape or form, and people who aren't wanting to necessarily embrace the trappings of modern lives. They see value in the way cultural life is in their respective communities. Like some of these young kids in Little Tibet could easily just want to play Nintendo or computer games. But you see young people learning Tibetan and engaging in dance and music. It's great to see like them kind of continuing what the community values is important. And I think all four communities have that. Like there are rhythms and traditions in these towns which people value and they love and they say, this is what makes my place a unique place. And that's The Take. 
To watch the films, check out the link in our episode description. This episode was produced by Ashish Mahotra, with Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Chloe K. Lee, Ruby Zaman, and me, Hala Mahiyadeen. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Malek and Adam Abugad are the Takes Engagement Producers, and Ney Alvarez is our Head of Audio. We'll be back on Monday 